0: All right. So, Jeff, today we, uh,
1: we featured Devin Vodichka. Absolutely. And I will tell you, uh, our listeners should know that um, that was definitely not the first time that we did a take and you pronounced his name correctly. Like you nailed it. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Devin. Yeah, no. Well done. Well done on that one. And so, um, yeah, that was great. And what, I, what I'll tell you I loved about Devin is that, um, well, you could probably tell. Devin's a very thoughtful, articulate man. Yes, yes, highly intelligent. Oh my gosh, it's great. And so the times that he and I have talked preparing for this have just been so motivating and exciting. I feel like I'm learning and hopefully contributing a little bit uh, to some of his perspectives. But I will tell you what I loved is that he's not just a rah-rah person. He really is detailed, specific to What he believes and where we need to go, and I appreciate the ability to to do that. It almost comes across as, you know, like like a professor describing something in a way that I can relate to. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I even thought he was a he was a good champ about it when he started glitching out a couple of times.
1: <laughs> he did. Oh yeah. In fact, and yeah, I, we'll, we'll say to the listener there were a couple of times you are like, whoa, uh oh. So we're going to have to do kind of just a couple of slices and dices. But um, yeah, he was very flexible, and uh, I think we ended up having a great discussion. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Chris. And ladies and gentlemen, you're going to love to listen to Devin, I promise. The Learner-Centered Leadership is the title of his book, which is also a great read. And his organization, his nonprofit, does incredible work to support districts, teachers, leaders, and therefore, children. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose and today is going to be fun. It's going to be engaging and I'm excited because um, I I have recently been introduced to a new educational leader and and we're going to be talking with him, and we're talking from opposite ends of the country. I sit just outside of Atlanta, and our guest Devin uh, Vodishka. I'm hoping I said that correctly. I, I think I did. Is going to be joining us from California, and I was introduced to Devin uh, several months ago, and since then he and I have had several opportunities to talk, and I have become. More and more interested, I just continue to look more and more to this, uh, forward to this conversation. Um, I've been able to get in touch and uh, read his book, and I, I recommend you do the same. Some of the themes that we're going to be talking about clearly align to learner-centered leadership, a blueprint, a blueprint for transformational change in learning communities, and that was something that drew me to him because the first time we talked, I could tell we have this passion for collaboration. And that is something that has um, been a lifeline for me as an educational uh, leader for um, a long, long, long time. So let me tell you a little bit, just a little bit uh, about Devin. Um, Devin is determined to help schools nurture children as individuals and shed the one-size-fits-all approach. He became a teacher in 1996. Today, Devin is recognized as one of the most innovative educational leaders in the country and in 15 and 16, 2015-16, he racked up a series of Superintendents of the Year from AASA um, in California, ASCA in California, Pepperdine in California, and then ASCA in San Diego County. So a bunch of Superintendent of the Year awards. I may tease him about that here in the moment. He was invited to the White House nine times nine times in recognition for his district wide achievements and to advise and partner with the US Department of Education's office of T- of educational technology and digital promise league of innovative schools devon is renowned for his unique understanding of how technology can help transform learning learning most notably how personalized learning can play a a really critical role, enabling educators to better support each other's progress and success. So during his five-year tenure as a superintendent of Vista Unified School District, I know it well because I I used to live close to it, um, Devin led his 25,000 student community through district-wide changes that resulted in major improvements across every academic and behavioral metric, from college readiness to truancy and so on and so forth. And his bio does go on, but... You don't want to sit and listen to me read about him, so let me invite Devon to the screen. Devon, great to see you, and do you want to spend a little time teasing me for um, per- perhaps mispronouncing your last name? Did I do that, or how did I do? Vodichka.
0: Yeah, you did a fine job. You sound like a, a native Czech speaker. Yeah, Vodichka is Czech, and it means little water.
1: Okay, well then I then I feel uh, somewhat accomplished for today. How? So you're coming from California. It's great to see you again. Um, how are things? How was your your fall? I mean, your rhythm in California is a bit different. I mean, obviously, falls in terms of starting school happens differently depending on where you're standing in the country. But how have things mm-hmm. been for you? Like, you know, summer into fall. Um, what's yeah. new in your in your world?
0: Well, I feel really fortunate uh, in the work that I do uh, as CEO of Learner Centered Collaborative, or national nonprofit. I get to work with schools and districts and state agencies all over the country. And uh, this has been a really exciting back to school season. Uh, many of our school district partners are telling us it feels like the first normal start to a school year in several years. Uh, and I find that, you know, the beginning of the school year always has a lot of optimism, a lot of positive energy. But this year seems to have a, a, a special sense of of what's possible. Uh, and uh, it's just been really great to feed off of that energy from schools and districts across the country.
1: So, you know, we've experienced over the past number of years, um, like it's it's been an emotional roller coaster. I think it's fair to say, right, in schools yep. for a variety of reasons, reasons. obviously the COVID chaos. And then some of, uh, during that challenge, once again, depending on where you were sitting in the country, um, we would see a a light at the end of the tunnel for, at least we would think it would be. And then that light would shut off, right? And we would go dark again for periods. And I think that that the emotional toil that took on educators, Um, was difficult. So I'm hearing you say that what you're experiencing is perhaps um, uh, some enthusiasm um, and maybe less worry about what's around the corner. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah.
0: And I think, uh, you know, the other point that you made is, uh, you know, going through the pandemic was an extremely stressful experience for everybody. It was unprecedented in terms of uh, all of the changes that that uh, you know were were put into motion in a short period of time. Not to mention the legitimate uh, harm, physically, emotionally, uh, you know, in terms of our economic status. That 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 all of these hardships, all of these stressors, uh, made things very difficult. And so many of our educators, whether we're talking about school leaders or teachers, uh, really just rolled up their sleeves and did whatever it took to to move through that very challenging period of time. And my sense is that, you know, once the um, the pandemic was over, we still had uh, a fatigue, a lot of the residual effects uh, that were affecting, you know, the adults and the, the students, of course, as well, but the adults seemed very tired.
1: So l- let's back up before we kind of dive into, you know, you know more news about what we're seeing and experiencing in schools and of course some of your areas of expertise i i just briefly mentioned your bio which by the way never really provides the necessary uh, nuance to someone's career and arc can you just help our listeners get to know you a little bit better i mean obviously you've had some some great success but what yeah. about what about prior to you know being superintendent of the year four times over i mean what, yeah. what has been your trajectory, and maybe maybe describe your why a little bit better than I did by reading your bio. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, my, my childhood. And so uh, my dad is Czech, hence the name Vodichka. My mom is Dutch, uh, and they moved to California before I was born, so I'm a first-generation American. Both of them uh, worked in technical fields and then became computer teachers. And so I grew up in a household where we had, uh, you know, the most cutting edge innovations of, of the time, whether it was a Commodore computer, or Laserdisc <laughs> or what have you. Uh, but I was always immersed in this environment of, you know, what's possible in education. And we would have long family conversations about the future of teaching and learning um, and that definitely was foundational. And I knew at a very young that I wanted to be an educator, wanted to uh, follow in the footsteps of my parents. Um, the other thing that I would say was really formative for me was being a cultural outsider. Uh, and at a very young age, sort of recognizing that my cultural identity was not necessarily seen or valued in the American education system definitely led me to feel like my whole self wasn't necessarily welcome in school. And that's not a great feeling when you're a young person, person of any age. Uh, and I think the combination of, of that futuristic view of, of what's possible <clears throat> in learning, coupled with that cultural outsider experience, led me to f- develop uh an idea uh that we might be able to bring out the best of each of us if we really saw and valued what was unique about each of us instead of seeing our differences as defects uh you know how might we reimagine an educational experience where uh we really truly embrace diversity in all of its different forms and see it as a true asset what would that look like? How might we be able to build on the strengths that each of us bring into a learning community? And uh, I, you know, I think those experiences as a young person were really critical in, sh- in shaping my educational philosophy and, and my why. And I think whether I've been a computer lab aide or a teacher or principal or district office leader, I've uh, been really committed to this possibility that we, we can really see and know and value each and every person in our learning community, celebrate what makes them unique and, and learn, grow together as a community to, to be better.
1: Well, I mean, as you describe, you know, feeling like a cultural outsider, um, mm-hmm. clearly there's a, a lot of alignment from that as well as, you know, some of your Kind of your platform on alert centered leadership, and we're going to clearly get into that. But mm-hmm. um, your your push for educators to think of students as as individuals, right? And the mm-hmm. opportunity to really kind of enhance their ownership, teachers' ownership over them as individuals. And anyway, I'm not mm-hmm. going to speak for you, but I can ima- I can see the bridge from what you yeah. described as a student and how that felt to some of the things that you talk about and some of your expertise now, which is which is phenomenal. Now before, let's go back a little bit. Oh, by the way, is the Commodore 64, right? Yes. I mean, that ages us, doesn't it? It does. Right?
0: We actually had an Apple two Plus at my house that the Smithsonian asked for. That's <laughs> That just tells you a little bit about my where I was. I feel like I was one of the first digital natives uh, to grow up with that kind of technology.
1: Oh, you would have been. I And I remember the Commodore 64 begging. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know really what it was, but it just seemed really cool. And I, I really, really wanted one. And My parents said something where I'd have to pay for 50%. I didn't have the cash. And so it never happened. But I used yeah. to just Um, I remember memorizing something about the RAM of that compared to some others. I don't know. Um, Once again, it just ages us. Now, Mm -hmm. we started talking about um, some of the, which is great to see some of the um, enhanced enthusiasm of educators that you're seeing right now as you support districts, um, definitely in California, but also throughout the country. Um, But what... The last five years have created this incredible uh, this shaky foundation in, in education, which mm-hmm. also creates rich opportunity for change, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. I'm curious, other than a kind of a, a teacher's perspective and um, kind of intrinsic motivation, what mm-hmm. are some of the trends that you're seeing now compared to maybe mm-hmm. what was three years ago compared to five different five years mm-hmm. ago what are some of the things that are you're enthusiastic about um as it relates to potential changes around the corner yeah
0: well i think the lining of the pandemic is it really created an opportunity where we had the we were compelled to question everything so you know why do we focus on seed time does learning need to be organized into courses with isolated academic disciplines. How do we know if students are really learning? Well, the ways that we can report uh, their progress, does it need to be a letter grade? Uh, you know, how might we reimagine the use of time and space uh, when we know that, you know, remote learning or digital learning is, is more possible than it ever has been in the past? What are the focus areas uh, to ensure that learning is relevant and and really helping to prepare our young people for this dynamic and and rapidly changing context. These are all questions that I think we've been confronted with in the past few years. And now that the conditions have stabilized a little bit, uh, I feel like one of the most fundamental questions that uh, communities everywhere are asking is what does success mean in school? Uh, In this modern context, you know, clearly some of the things that we imagined were rigid and inflexible uh, can change and can adapt. And so, what does that mean at a time when we have the opportunity to be thoughtful about recreating these systems instead of, you know, more reactive to uh, emergency remote learning? So, reimagining what success looks like and exciting. Uh, and I think we're all asking that question and trying to get more clear about what are the critical uh, skills and knowledge and habits that students need to have to to be creative, uh, you know, problem solvers in the future.
1: So I'm going to mention potentially a, a, an interesting juxtaposition position in education. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd be curious to see, you know, your or hear your perspective on it. Uh, one, I'm, I'm I'm shaking my head as you're talking up and down because I'm thinking mm-hmm. that, well, of course, and that is the case. And there are some silver lining to the incredible challenges that we experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, I also see this really interesting dilemma in education, you know, from my perch on the balcony, right? Not the dance mm-hmm. floor. And we'll talk about that later. But um, that there is... A yearning by some educators, understandably so, to be able to say, "Can't and to go back to normal." I mean that the mm-hmm. concept of 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 normal, um, mm-hmm. in my opinion, one there's an opportunity for us to not be normal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all this stress and anxiety that our educators have faced, leaders specifically, um, mm-hmm. and then of course the mass exodus and, and turnover. Mm-hmm. So how? In, in your how do your in your opinion can we start to help educators um, understand and embrace the concept of not going back to normal but moving forward despite maybe their their understandable exhaustion
0: yeah well I think there's a couple of uh, couple of ways that I think about this one is we have to be honest about um, what normal was prior to the pandemic. And uh, one of the the graphs that I show in a lot of uh, my talks is the one that shows high school graduation rates going up uh, basically every decade from 1900 to 1970, and then it plateauing around 1970. And for the past 50 years, we've had national high school graduation rates that are around 80% which means that one out of five students doesn't even make it through high school. Uh, and that is a trend that has you know, held firm for 50 years. And during that period of time, we've tried a lot of reforms. We've had amazing educators, people like my own parents, who have done the best that they could to try to ensure that every student can succeed. And so the inescapable conclusion of that is that the system is optimized to get those results. And we need rethink the systems and structures if we're really serious about all learners thriving. Um, and we know uh, uh, that there is something better that's possible. And, and we know that from what we've learned in cognitive science. We know that from what we've learned in the science of learning. We know that from some of these pockets of success that we've seen you know, around the country. And so uh, we can't be satisfied with the way things were, and we, we know better. And so we, we, we are compelled to do better if we really care about every child, every young person. Uh, and so one of the questions that I will often ask people is, what are the risks of inaction? You know, mm-hmm. what happens if we don't lean into uh, a, a better possible future and let's make sure that we weigh every decision that we make against that risk of inaction. And for me, uh, you know, the choice is really, really clear. We, 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 we absolutely uh, have a moral and ethical imperative to, uh, to create something better uh, so that every learner knows themselves, thrives in community, actively engages in the world as their best self. That's what's gonna serve each of us individually. It's gonna serve communities. It's gonna serve us as a society. And the consequences of inaction are are unacceptable.
1: So I've um, I've I've been able to to read through your your, your book, learner centered leadership, and um, what I thought we could do is is talk about some of the themes in mm-hmm. there. I, I'm not going to walk through one chapter at a time, um, mm-hmm. but um, I do want to make sure that. Um, some of the things we try to we try to pull out a little bit based upon mm-hmm. not just your perspective and what you write about, but also what we're seeing mm-hmm. in the field today, right? Because as mm-hmm. you know, you could put something on paper uh, six months ago and things yeah. change, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of learner-centered leadership, right at the beginning of the book, you describe it. But mm-hmm. if for um, our listeners, if they have not read this, can you mm-hmm. just spend a little bit, give us a quick synopsis on what you mean by yeah. learner-centered leadership?
0: Yeah. Well, I tell the story about how when I became a superintendent, I started doing student forums and and really asking young people, what's school like for you? What do you like about it? What are the challenges? What could we do better? Uh, and, you know, it's it's a humbling story to tell, but I had been in education for a long time. And I felt like that was really the first time that I had stopped to deeply listen and have empathy for the experience of young people who have incredible hopes and dreams and aspirations. And what they shared was was really sort of heartbreaking because they described that they were curious and that they were motivated to solve real challenges and they wanted to learn from one another. And then they would come to school and have this sort of like passive sit and get one size fits all experience. And, uh, you know, having that voice in my head, uh, I think elevated my sense of urgency around uh, some of the changes that uh, we hope to see in the world. So, the first part of learner centered leadership is really always grounding ourselves in what's best for learners. And, and a big part of that is being proximate and being humble and being curious and being in a listening stance and then the second piece is redefining leadership which we often equate with your formal title your position your your authority and reframing it around having a sense of purpose uh, building high levels of participation and engagement and then using feedback to guide your progress towards that vision of a better future and when you reframe leadership as purpose participation and feedback you realize that all of us can be leaders uh, and, and in a lot of cases are, are, you know, compelled to be leaders. And so uh, the combination of that proximity with learners and being grounded in what's best for them and that reframing of leadership as purpose, participation, feedback means that uh, we all have a role to play in building a brighter future.
1: So you, when we when you and I talked and kind of preparing for this conversation, we talked about this interesting dilemma of uh, educators feeling and being isolated, and <laughs> that right, and sometimes that almost that these systems are almost designed to create um, isolation mm-hmm. for people, and it's it's interesting that you know, if you look at polling data on teachers and what brings them to the field um, and what sometimes they originally say about the work is that um, they feel supported by colleagues. Mm -hmm. However, when they leave the uh, the field, often they say, well, I left because of, I felt isolated. So uh, this really interesting, you know, contrasting information and data Mm -hmm. that we have so mm-hmm. as we look at leadership, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be positional leadership, right? I have a title. Right. Um, what are some of your thoughts on how we can start to strategically break down some of these, you know, mm-hmm. silos that sometimes happen in the educational field, which is the, probably the one place you would hope and assume that was not the case. But in fact, it is.
0: That's right. Well, and if you're a student of, of uh, uh, U.S. education, you know that, many of our systems and structures were influenced, uh, by the industrial paradigm. Uh, and so, you know, you can look at things like Taylor's view of scientific management, which was rooted in this sort of mechanistic mindset, uh, that if you optimize the parts, you end up improving as a whole. And a lot of our systems and structures are designed around that, uh, also very much, uh, focused on this idea that we benefit from efficiency as our uh, sort of paradigm uh, through which we make decisions. So the consequence of that is you get a lot of isolated uh, work uh, at all levels, uh, because what you're trying to do in that industrial mechanistic paradigm is uh, specialization and optimizing the part again, so that, you know, ideally there's efficiency in the whole, And so, uh, you know, these metaphors like uh, conveyor belts that are used in the industrial assembly lines are really the ways in which a lot of our learning experiences were organized uh, with the idea that educators could be specialists uh, who work with age-based cohorts, which by the way, is a concept that comes out of the mid uh, 1800s from Prussia. It's not necessarily based in learning sciences. Uh, but we've optimized around this idea that if we specialize, we'll have efficiency. Uh, and and the consequence for the adults is that we end up with self-contained classrooms. We end up with schools that exist in isolation from one another. Uh, and the experience of being an educator, whether you're a teacher or principal or district office leader, often feels very solitary. Uh, and we know not just from cognitive science, but from what we see in other fields is that performance is elevated when we work in cross-functional teams. And even in the field of manufacturing, they've moved away from the industrial uh, models of, of, assembly lines into what they call cellular, cell, cellular manufacturing, where they have cross-functional teams who work together, uh, optimize the outputs based on the dynamic needs of, um, uh, of customers. And so, There are models uh, in other industries, and there's a lot that we know about how we can improve, but we need to reimagine the systems and structures of education to promote that collaboration and that cross-functional work that uh, is, is going to be really important in the future.
1: So, the, the, you just described the need extremely well. Um, mm-hmm. You also described, I think, this, um, you know, kind of where the current conditions, some of the working conditions, some of the learning conditions for our students come mm-hmm. from. And mm-hmm. so, th- I guess the question becomes then, you know, something that you talk about, relational trust, social mm-hmm. connectivity. Mm-hmm. If If we know... Devin that these 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 factors are still at play in schools despite um, uh, many fields changing and modifying based mm-hmm. upon say the needs of the customers mm-hmm. what makes it so difficult for us you know, I'm, and I'm one as an educator so difficult yeah. for us right as from a teacher and a principal to superintendent right we've walked some similar paths seen some yep. probably similar things what yep. makes it so difficult for us to change the paradigm i mean i i keep waiting for this incredible disruptor in education yep. i thought covid's going to be it but in the meantime yep. we still mm-hmm. are experiencing some falling back to some yep. traditional model so let's talk mm-hmm. about what does it take to you know really shake Um, yeah those you know some of the things that you talk about as it relates to relational trust social connectivity what what's it going to take to break down some of these walls of uh, you know isolation
0: yeah well the first thing that I would say is um, you know in my own learning journey uh, I got really interested in the very question you're asking like what's what's holding us back uh, and how do we How can we accelerate the rate of development in schools to to better align with the needs of the modern age? And uh, what I learned through doing the research is that there's this concept of social capital, uh, which is very predictive of change, positive changes. Uh, And social capital is essentially a map of the relationships that we have. And those relationships uh, form the connections for us to exchange expertise and other resources uh, so that we grow and improve. And so uh, this concept of social capital is w- w- was new to me as an educator. And then I really started to get interested in, well, how do you create social capital? How, if it's important, if it's predictive of long-term benefits, how can we get more intentional about it? And there's a field of social network analysis where you can do network maps, but all of it is predicated on this idea that relationships are really important. So then I started asking the question, well, how do you develop positive relationships? Uh, and I think this is one of those constructs where you can talk to almost any educator and say, are relationships important? And they will say yes. But if you say, how do you develop those positive relationships? If we, don't, we don't always have a good language around it. It's it's one of those like people will say they know it when they when they see it or when they feel it. But I was curious about getting more systematic around it. And there is a lot of research around relational trust that says it takes consistency, compassion, competence and communication. And where you see those four elements at play, you have high levels of trust. People are more willing to be vulnerable, to take risks, to try new things, to share resources and information. And that's where you see these improvements. Uh, And if I've had any success in my career, it's because I've been surrounded by amazing people who have developed strong relationships, they've shared, they've learned together, uh, and, and that has led to a lot of positive outcomes. But this question becomes, if that's true then why don't we do more of that in education why why isn't that just the default and and i think unfortunately a lot of it has to just do with our conditioning <laughs> mm-hmm. so these yeah. concepts of social capital and the value of relational trust these are these are not terms that are used very commonly in educational spaces because of that industrial you know m- mechanistic sort of sort of mindset and that plays out not just within educational context but society as a whole and so we have these notions about what is school what is learning that are based on our own experiences and um there's there's a lot of just inertia in that status quo and we don't exist in a vacuum students leave k-12 and they go into higher education or they go into the workforce or they go into you know military there's they're we're part of an interdependent system, and so it's going to take many of these players within this ecosystem to kind of reframe uh, uh, before we get to that tipping point that you described, where we go from seeing these pockets uh, of incredible innovation uh, become more ubiquitous. But it is possible, and it's happening, and I'm excited uh, that I feel like there's there's momentum around uh, creating a new normal for for every learner.
1: Well, you you mentioned, um, and I'm I'm just jotting notes furiously as you're talking. So you mentioned that, um, you know, we have this this notion of what is school and what is learning. And sometimes those are traditional notions, um, Mm -hmm. simultaneous, that we know that um, there are these issues on isolation, and yet there is a yearning for Mm -hmm. relationships. Um, But sometimes not always this, you know, systemic or discrete strategy on how mm-hmm. those get created. And I know yeah. a lot of that is is part of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the impact and I'll focus on what you see as the impact when some of these, um, co- you know, walls that mm-hmm. um, don't allow or promote this collaborative discourse that we know is the right thing for the educators. What is the impact that we see as it relates mm-hmm. to teaching and learning for our children? And so I know that you see and experience that. Walk us through uh, some of the benefits of once there is an understanding on what can be done to Mm -hmm. create some of these changes in schools, the impact that has on the kid.
0: Yeah. So we see a host of positive outcomes for for students where systems make a choice and they decide that they're going to move towards more team-based Uh, integrated experiences for learners. And by the way, I talked about the importance of listening to learners. If you actually listen to your students, your your learners, they will tell you they want more social experiences. So sometimes when when we use terms like learner-centered or personalized learning, there's this idea that that will mean independent study, but we are social creatures. So by being responsive to learners, we end up designing more social, more interactive experiences in every case. It's, it's uh, universal, uh, and when that happens, we see that uh, the the students, the learners, are more engaged. They're more inspired. They persist. They end up with higher levels of achievement uh, on on any metric that you look at. Uh, and the educators, the adults, uh, are all engaged, more inspired, uh, and they they have a greater sense of satisfaction. So. A couple of metrics I, I would throw out there. When I was in my first year as superintendent, we had about an 80% year over year teacher retention rate reti- teacher retention rate uh in the school district. In year five, it was ninety-eight percent. Ninety-eight percent? Ninety-eight percent. And this was basically, you know, same kids, same community, same buildings same materials, the 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 and but a different learning experience. And, uh, you know, one story in particular that stands out to me is I I made it a point to go visit every classroom in my first year as superintendent. And, you know, we had, I think, 1,600 uh, classrooms in Vista. And so I got to see a lot Uh, and, you know, the whole range, some just unbelievable uh, educators doing incredible work. Uh, And you see some patterns and trends. But there was one class I remember walking out of and just feeling uh, deflated because the teacher exhibited as if he was just burned out. He was, he was not engaging with the students. He was sitting at his desk. The kids were doing some sort of menial task. The the environment was sterile. It just was, it was, it was pretty depressing. And so I walked out, I talked to the principal. I said, what's the story with this teacher? And he said, well, he's just watching the clock. He's going to retire at the end of the year. And like, we're just, we're we're all watching the clock because, it's just not a great situation. Yeah, it's time.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> now I,
0: I was, it was, it, you know, it was very sad to see that. Uh, and then I, I, you know, came back to the school a couple months later. We did classroom walkthroughs and that teacher was thoroughly transformed. <laughs> it was like the spark had been reignited for him uh, and the students were engaged. The work was authentic and meaningful and, and relevant. Uh, the teacher was engaged he ended up postponing his retirement uh, and just doing incredible work with students. And when I asked him about it later, what he said to me was, you know, he felt like he had trapped with all of the restrictions around standardization and following pacing guides and not having a lot of autonomy to be a real learning designer. And and the humanity had sort of been taken out of, of teaching from his perspective. And what had happened was in the course of going through our change process, he felt like he had permission and protection to do the things that he knew w- was w- were right for his 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 students. And he was very, very capable and he did, you know, incredible work and he ended up teaching for several more years. So I've seen that. That that's maybe an extreme case, but I've seen that happen with educators over and over and over again. Most educators get into teaching or, you know, into education for the right reasons or motivated to make an impact. And sometimes, you know, they they, they start to feel demotivated. Uh, and when they feel effective, uh, they're very, very capable. And we have incredible educators all over the country doing great work and, and with the potential to do even more impactful work if we support them to make those human connections to support the whole learner.
1: Well, I'll say I want to give... Um... You know, you credit, but also some of the leaders in your district credit specific to that data you described, right, mm-hmm. on, on, on teacher retainment. I, we did, mm-hmm. we did an, uh, a leader chat with a gentleman named Richard Ingersoll, who mm-hmm. um, does incredible research on, um, you know, some, some trends in teachers and mobility and so forth. Mm-hmm. And um, really, there's so much of yes. uh, the impact has to do with the leader the leaders mm-hmm. in the school, the principals, finding what he mm-hmm. described, whether you call it loose and tight or a balance of autonomy and fidelity, however you kind of describe that that balancing, you need systems, you need structure, you need to be a cohesive team, and yes. teachers need to feel empowered, right? And yes. if they do feel empowered over the very thing that drove them into the classroom in the first place, which, by the way, was not... I really wanna go be a teacher because I want high, high results. That wasn't it, right? right? right. It was a love right. for this teaching and learning process and being able to guide and have relationships with with, with, with students, right? And a, yeah. often, sometimes even a love for the content, but not for the very things for which we sometimes hold them accountable for. So there's this natural conflict that happens and mm-hmm. we wonder why we're isolated and we wonder why teachers leave. It really comes down to leadership strategy in many ways.
0: Yes. Well, and, you know, it's daunting. I I remember many times waking up and realizing that it was going to be up to me as the superintendent or the principal or the director that, you know, (laughs) no one else was coming to do
1: that. That's right. Uh,
0: and, And it's a huge sense of responsibility. But when I've been at my best, I've recognized that I can't do it alone. Uh, that I'm surrounded by incredible, dedicated, talented people who are, are you know, trying to make a positive difference in the lives of others. And I've been at my best when I've tried to create systems and structures for us to function as teams. And, um, uh, you know, so I hope for anyone out there who's feeling that burden, uh, you know, that they understand that the paradox is that as a leader, we're most effective when we, uh, when we trust others, when we, when we, we ourselves are vulnerable and extend uh, trust to to others. That's when we see uh, them being their authentic selves and bringing their, their full capabilities into the work. Uh, and that makes all the difference. And so, yeah, trusting others to do the right thing and, and, and uh, you know, supporting them in that journey is is one of the hardest, uh, one of the hardest things about actually embracing leadership.
1: You know, when you describe some of the burden that's felt Mm -hmm. amongst leaders, which is very, very true. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. very isolating work. For leaders, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, the last time you and I talked, uh, we we came across and discovered that we're both Heifetz fans, right? And yes. we're talking about a variety of things. And one, when we're talking about adaptive versus technical changes, et cetera, and that led to this other conversation around having an adaptive mindset. And mm-hmm. I wrote that down and thought, yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Push Devin on that to talk yeah. to us about that because that's really really important. Can mm-hmm. you can you talk to us about whether it be um, examples or some of your advice or input mm-hmm. the importance on having an adaptive mindset?
0: Yeah, well, Heifetz is is a very uh, influential thinker in my, in my view of uh, leadership, and he makes this Amen. great distinction <laughs> between you know technical problems and adaptive challenges. And a technical problem is one where the problem is easy to identify and the solution is known. Uh, And in that context, uh, that technical problem can be solved by an expert, someone who has seen that problem and that solution before. And we do have technical problems in the world around us. You know, connecting to the Wi-Fi is a technical problem. You can diagnose the problem. It's been solved many times. You know, you can have an expert who can Help you with that type of thing. But most of the uh, problems or challenges that we confront as leaders are what Heifetz calls an adaptive challenge. And that is where the problem itself is hard to define and the solution may be completely unknown. So if I ask a question like, how do we ensure that all learners in our community know themselves and thrive together uh, in a community? That That is a just identifying the problem is, 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 is a a, ch- a challenge by itself. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if it had been uh, identified and solved before in your community, it would have already been done. So nobody knows how to do that exactly. And Heifetz really talks about how, when you are confronted with an adaptive challenge, the people who have the challenge need to be involved in finding the solution. Then this gets to the sort of why we need teams instead of isolated practice right now is the context around us is changing so fast. Just think in the past, you know, six months, like the disruptive impacts of AI, which many of us have seen coming, but still like, like, you know, our, our policies, our structures, our all, all of these systems all need to be reconsidered again, and they'll need to be reconsidered another time, you know, a week from now or two weeks from now. So the world around us is changing so fast that we are compelled, I believe, to have this adaptive mindset and to think then about not waiting for someone to come in and solve those problems for us, but how can we come together as a community to embrace the complexity of those challenges, and come up with our own solutions as best as we can, knowing that we're going to have to recreate those solutions again over and over again because the context is not going to be static.
1: Well, you—you you heard me whining or venting earlier about you know uh, maybe a lack of sometimes disruption in education. I think that. You and I will have to um, promise that we'll do a, a volume two of this discussion a year from now and talk about what AI has done mm-hmm. and where it's going. Because um, mm-hmm. if 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 that doesn't pr- produce some sort of incredible um, yep. shift and change in teaching and learning, I don't know what would. Um, so let me ask you this question, and this is really to make sure that we, you know, create this arc to this conversation. I could talk to you for a long, long time, but um, Devin, the one thing that we uh, really focus on in our leadership circle is mm-hmm. right this this quote that that we stole from my pastor, which is that circles are better than rows. Mm-hmm. And this is the one thing that we do actually that produces content that we push to our members um, as a way for them to get information in a very kind of practical way. Mm-hmm. However, the majority of our systems are gathering people around the table, right? Mm-hmm. So that how, how do we tap the collective wisdom of one another as leaders and have protocols that actually bring forward, you know, mm-hmm. really, really honest discourse. Yeah. So if you and I were to pretend mm-hmm. that we're at a round table and mm-hmm. with us, our principals, Uh, Superintendents, directors, regardless of that title, Mm -hmm. they, of course, come with the burden that you described so well earlier. Mm -hmm. What what would you want to leave them with? What would be Mm -hmm. kind of like, here's my, you know, I call it drop the mic or brass tacks Mm -hmm. input or advice at this point in time, Mm -hmm. assuming that you want to be very, very direct. What would you say to them? Yeah.
0: Well, I love what you're saying about circles, and it reminds me of uh, another one of my favorite authors, Margaret Wheatley, and she oh. talks about, you know, the leader as convener and and taking on this idea of being kind of a social host, but uh, I, I remember as a new superintendent thinking, you know, I need to do like a SWOT analysis, or I need to figure out where the gaps are, I need to remediate them, that was sort of the the voice in my head that was my conditioning, uh, but then I, I remembered a passage that she wrote where she said, the thing that a leader needs to do is ask two questions. First is who cares? And the second is what's possible. And asking that question, who cares, is going to continue to expand the circle. You're going to widen uh, participation. You're going to uh, create more inclusion. Uh, and you're going to bring in perspectives that are very, very important and valuable Uh, to help confront these adaptive challenges that we have. So the first question we have to continually ask ourselves is who else cares about this and how can we bring them into the circle? And then once they're in the circle, the next question is what's possible? What can we do together? And that sort of openness to a sense of possibility is the mindset that we have to have in the face of these adaptive challenges. Uh, And in my experience, when you create that wide circle of inclusion and you keep asking that question about what's possible, then anything can be done because we have incredible potential, incredible resources, incredible expertise. And it's by coming together and sharing them uh, that we can be at our best as individuals and as a community.
1: Devin, it's almost as though um, you and I have worked together for years. This is awesome. I mean, the the reason I say that is because um, you bring a a really unique perspective based upon your background and some of the content and support services that you're providing. But in the meantime, so much of um, what brings us together is kind of this this passion for collaborative practices um, and structures that actually start to uh, maybe push against some of the norms that we've experienced some of the isolation the and the impact that has on our kids so i just want to thank you for your ongoing work for this time together um this has been this has been a lot of fun and i i think if we didn't have a clock i i i think i could hang out with you for a long long time
0: well i look forward to doing that jeff uh right. and it's always a privilege to reflect and connect and uh thank you for the opportunities to be mindful and to share
1: absolutely until our paths cross again Devin. Thank you. See you. So ladies and gentlemen, I I want you to just remind you um, or say it again, his last piece of advice, which was so wonderful is one, widen your circle, right? So one thing that we push is sometimes moving outside of your backyard as it relates to some of those, you know, collaboration opportunities. And number two, ask what's possible when we do so. There's only so much you can do when you're working in isolation, which sometimes happens, whether you have designed it or not, it just is. Incredible things can happen when we come together, especially when we are hearing perspectives that maybe, um, one, are safe, and two, we're sometimes not used to hearing. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you enjoyed that just as much as I did, and we're so good at getting great people for these leader chats. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.